Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. Today's guest on CPG is a living legend in the world of poker, the author of Elements of Poker, Painless Poker, and Waiting for Straighters, the great Tommy Angelo. Tommy is no garden variety poker coach. He's more like the Vince Lombardi of poker coaches, having been a grinder for over 30 years with a who's who list of clients who have gone on to chase their own version of poker greatness. In broad strokes, Tommy places great emphasis on mental health and reducing unhappiness as a means to increasing profit and well-being. Lately, Tommy's been busy whipping up videos in a series called Poker Words on YouTube that you can check out by clicking through on his show page at ChasingPokerGreatness.com. This is Tommy's third go-around as a guest on CPG, and if I get my way, he'll be on many future episodes to come. Between you and me, it's great that I get to share mine and Tommy's conversations, but that's totally secondary as far as I'm concerned. He's such a wealth of poker and life wisdom that every time I shut down the recording, I feel so incredibly blessed to be in his direct sphere of influence. Today, like in past episodes with Tommy, you're going to hop into a time machine and journey through his colorful past, including hilarious poker stories from his greatest hits collection, and then we'll spend some time reflecting both on what's going on in the present as well as speculating about the future. Some greatness bombs you're about to hear include the number one thing Tommy believes poker players get wrong, Tommy's thoughts on what makes for good poker education in the modern day, what life in the underground poker scene of the 80s was like, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I present to you a poker legend, coach, and dear friend, the great Tommy Angelo. Tommy, welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness, my friend. How are you? Great. Good to see you, Brad. It's nice to see you as well. And this is your third appearance on CPG. And the last one was maybe six months ago or so? Actually, I just looked. It was only three months ago. Three months ago. <laughs> I guess it's been a, a fairly busy last three months. So what's, yeah. been hap- what's been happening in the last three months? I know that you've launched your new YouTube channel. Just mm-hmm. uh, let's catch the listeners up. You've also joined poker coaching and making right. co- content for them as well. Right. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So Lee and I finished the poker simple video series when COVID started. We got 31 videos done under Poker Simple. And then I am so into making movies, I just kept on going. So I'm doing solo stuff now under the label Poker Words. Best way to find it is just go to my website, TommyAngelo.com, and scroll down a teeny bit and you'll see my solo videos and the ones I did with Lee, which are still getting a lot of traction. People really like those. So, um, yeah, I mean, you just kind of kind of see them. Uh, it's just like right now I'm getting ready to do. I did a set, uh, a series, a three-part series called On Position. And um, so these are strat 
videos. And the, the last one is called Folding the Small Blind in Limp Pots. And that one is getting a lot of, uh, getting a lot of love because the, the theories, the, the betting strategy theories in there about position, it's like this is one isolated case where in, all of the thoughts and all the things I've learned about the importance of position and how to actually put that into practice are in this video. One of them is called Folding to Three Bets from Behind, which is another, these are all, you know, position-sensitive videos, all three of them. You're kind um, of a, I would say, see, position and poker, right? It's such, it's like the first rule, I think, that players sort of hear from the outside is like position is paramount, position is paramount, position is, position matters. And yeah. Even recently, I've been doing data analysis and making courses, and my courses specifically target uh, the weaker players in the pool, right? Because they're the they're kind of the easiest players to develop strong strategy, strong and profitable strategies against. And what I found that I I found to be pretty interesting was that naturally to an instinctual player, so a fish, a recreational, however you want to to label them they naturally lose half what they do when they're in position than what they do when they're out of position. And it's mm -hmm. nothing else has changed about anything. It's just that when they're in position, they lose half as much as they do when they're out of position. And that just goes to show you like the pure power, even in an inexperienced player's hands of just being in position versus being out of position. Well, yeah, the advantage of acting last has nothing to do with skill. You know, the, the way I put it in Elements of Poker is that acting last is like taking a drink of water. You don't have to know why it's good for you to know that it is. And it just is. So let me ask you this. So when you so, OK, so what do you do about this information? You know that it's better to act last. But how does that directly influence your decisions and where and this is a leading question because i'm going to give you my answer to that after you're done so typically i would say that the way that the way that it works for me is that when i'm out of position especially like pre-flop i tend to take more aggressive actions so that i can basically see the flop with initiative i think that you have to just play more aggressively typically pre-flop when you're out of position when you're in position you get to call like a lot of three bets. There's not a lot of like four bet bluffing in position because you're basically passing up your positional advantage by reopening the action pre-flop. So like that's just one area of how strategy changes based, based on position. Typically, you know, out of position strategy is much more complex, much harder to navigate, just much more difficult okay. in general. And less profitable, right? I mean, so that so you still haven't really got to my question, which was given that you know that it's way, way better to be last than first. How should that affect our game? So I'm just going to give you my answer. Yeah, okay? I, know, I know your answer. I, I, I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be in that, you know, don't. <laughs> just like... Don't what? Don't play lots of pots out of position. Like that's the... Right. Okay, right. So, so no surprise. I remembered the name of my first position video in the course of this conversation, which is... Know and grow your act last percentage. So this concept, your act last percentage, is something I've been, it's been part of my game since the beginning, mentally, but I only 
labeled it and started actually tracking it and thinking about it like in the last 10 years. Okay. So, so let's just say we agree that acting last is better than acting first. Okay. If you act last the same number of times as everyone else, then you've gained nothing. If you could somehow have the button every hand, let's say, or be in the cutoff in the button every hand, right, you'd be unstoppable. So what can we do with that information? Those words that I just said, how can we translate that into dollars in our pocket? I believe it's a super obvious and simple thing to do, which is to adjust your game, pre-flop primarily, but also your flop game, with this as the prime purpose, to act last way more than they do. You just said, even the bad player, his results are twice as good when they act last. So if you could just act last way more than everybody else, right there, and if you have decent poker skills, you, you almost can't lose. And so the thing I've been coaching people on for 15 years, and now I have these labels for it, is folding, this, folding the blinds. Nothing more than folding the blinds way more than your opponents do will automatically increase your act last percentage drastically. They're playing, you know, a range that's, say, this wide. So when they're playing that, if you play the same range as them, then you're all acting last the same amount in the, in the metagame. But if you shrink your blind range to this, then automatically you're throwing away a whole bunch of hands where you would be acting first, which automatically means now you're going to be acting last way more than them. And I wouldn't be so excited about this. I've always been excited about this because I knew this is how I made a living. But only because I've been coaching one, two, three, play, uh, you know, low stakes players, one, three and two, five players for four years now with my Zoom call coaching. And like every day I get these letters from like average ish players, not world beaters, typical players saying, oh, my God, why didn't somebody tell me this 10 years ago? It's so easy. They can just feel the feel the difference and the confidence in their game just by not playing all those pots out of position. Yeah, and it like like I said, you know, it kind of ties into taking fewer aggressive actions like on the button. So flatting more preflop on the button because basically if you three bet, again, you've opened the action up and you've opened the possibility that you get four bet, you don't get to realize your positional advantage. So like I think that also plays a role as it relates to playing out of the blinds. I would say that at small stakes, that's going to be great especially for less experienced type players um mm -hmm. as as competition kind of gets tougher you do have to start defending your blinds because like you know it, it's just yeah, a, I, I strongly you know disagree I mean. with that okay i I, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get that out there yeah get it out there so that you great. don't think i'm agreeing with you no okay. I, I i don't okay <laughs> i mean i've played 510 and higher, not much higher, but, you know, 10, 20 for 12 years constantly. And or more than that, if you count the Bay Area, I'm talking about just in Vegas, in the in the tough 510 games. And and I was unbeatable in those games. And I really, really believe, yes, I have good post flop skills, but I really, really believe I was beating them with my pre flop game. I mean, you you probably were right. Like, that's just. You know, well, you, I'm just saying right? that these were tough players. There are five or six pros in every one of these games. There's plenty of GTO guys. 
I'm just saying that this concept of full, of playing way more hands in position than they do is rock solid at all uh, uh, in all games, in my opinion. So the the point to where I'll, I'll press is okay. you know when the button's opening for a small raise and mm-hmm. you know that they're opening very wide. Let's um, say 100% and, of their hands. 100% of their hands, right. right? So in that situation, like what percentage are you advocating to fold out of the big blind? Say say if you're getting... Uh, 80%, they, 70%. 70%. Okay, that's, I mean, it's a high, high number. 80, but I fold 80. Mm-hmm. But I would recommend to the typical player 70. And then three betting, how many are you three betting? Me? Well, sure. see, my whole, uh, my, you, there's no way I can answer that without it explaining how it fits into my whole game. Okay. okay. Then we got time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really important to understand that I don't necessarily coach people on how I play, right? I mean, my, my way of playing has evolved to how it is, just like everyone else. If we're, we all have our own special way of playing, all right? So what I do is, Anything I tell you right now about how I defend and don't defend the blinds is going to sound ridiculous in isolation, but it's only profitable in the metagame mojo that it creates around me and how people play against me later. Okay, so for example, my absolute very favorite way to start a session, and this has happened a couple of times, is... Because at the beginning, everybody's kind of watching. On the picture, you're, we're at 510 at Bellagio or 1020 at Bellagio, right? And I just come in. Is I sit down on the big blind and get ace-king suited, folded around to a, a, a good, aggressive player on the button who raises, folded around to me, and I call. The flop comes, whatever. I check call almost every time, okay? <laughs> um, and then check. And so what I want to happen here is, is this hand to go to showdown. And it very often does. So let's say an ace flops. Okay. And I check and they bet or not. And then the next card comes and I check and they bet or not. And the next card comes and I check and I better. It might go check, 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 check. It might go check, bet, call, check, bet, call, check, bet, call. Doesn't matter. At some point, they're going to see my ace king if it's the winner. You know, if he, especially if he goes check, check on the river. And they're going to see, wow, this guy didn't three bet and he never budged, never breathed at the pot after flopping an ace, right? So then later, hands, and they, 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 after a while, people get a sense that I'm not three betting out of the blinds. I, I basically don't three bet out of the blinds without a big pair. That's what it comes down to, right? And I don't care if they know that, but they're not going to see enough action for me to figure that out. I've been through this enough times. They just won't know. But that is my range. And so what happens is I get pocket deuces in the big blind. Somebody raises, it comes around, and I call. I can't tell you how many times I get to the river on this hand and win it with pocket deuces because they've become frozen by the other plays that I make, the the hyper-passive out-of-position with ace-king plays and hands like that, right? So the whole thing goes together to where I call it a freeze play, and and so then, obviously, I have to counter-react as people react to that. You know, if it's a longer session, situations will come up where I'll be inducing a bluff with pocket fives. 
all the way, right? Out of the blinds I'm talking about. But the whole strategy is fundamentally based on me not three betting. And this is the metagame thing. I don't, I just don't want to build a big pot out of position without a hand that I'm willing to commit to ever. And the only hands I'm willing to commit with are like pocket aces, pocket kings. You know, that's really what it comes down to. So you combine that with my button, you know, my my folding rate on the button is probably overall is probably 50%. You know, I'm in a lot of pots in position. And then that, you know, my range, my range is like this wide out of position and this wide in position. And it takes a long time for people to adjust to that. And by the time they do, I'm done. What about when you're deep with a decent player and they Mm -hmm. open the button and you three bet aces and you only have your big pairs that you three bet with and you don't have board coverage. There's a lot of, you know, obviously scary boards where Mm -hmm. you're that you don't connect with in a way that gives you like two pairs straight sets those type of hands. How do you navigate that? Well, it's very easy because I have a showdown hand. And so my, my only objective there is um, getting in the most money I can when I have the best hand and getting out when I have the worst hand. So everything there at that, from that moment on is about reading the situation and figuring out if I'm beat or not. And that's just playing poker. But do you those, check? I don't, Go ahead. Would you like check full range on like six, seven, eight, two club flop when you three bet and you have depth and you have aces? Oh, no, I'm, oh, no, I, I bet the flop. If I three bet, I bet the flop in a heads up pot. I bet the flop. You got to say, I think it might be a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really care what the flop is because see what happens is I know what I'm going to do. I know how much I'm going to bet. Right. So, uh, we're playing 1020, guy makes it 40. I make it like 150 and say, let's say the stacks are 3000. Okay. At that moment, I know what I'm going to bet, how much I'm going to bet based on stacks and whatever else. And I know that I'm going to bet. So when the flop comes, I bet. And now it's all about feel at that time. Um, So basically, I guess if they just take very aggressive actions, I mean, and, and you only have over pairs, like how do you? And then if they're bluffing, I'm gonna I'm gonna catch them. And if they're, and not, if they're bluffing... not bluffing, I'm gonna fold. That's my plan. <laughs> that, yeah, but... <laughs> that's what I'm setting out to do: is stay in when they're bluffing and fold when they're not. That's it. Very simple. It's simple, but running a marathon is simple, but difficult in practice, right? So it's, it's not difficult for me. It's just not. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't know if I'm right all the time, but I'm just saying that it's not, I don't ever feel unease un- un- in those situations. I just know what I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. All right. And yeah, I mean, so I guess the final, final, my final thought on this is, that like if you're playing the big blind, you know, and the expectation is when you fold, you're losing a hundred big blinds per hundred, right? Like that's just the reality of the spot. When you fold the small blind, you're losing 50 big blinds per hundred. If you just fold folded every single time you're in the smaller big blind, that would be the the expectation. Um, and so in my opinion, 
you can lose less than 100 big blinds per 100 with some hands that uh yeah that that you defend with out of the big blind so you may not be like making money you're just losing a little bit less than you otherwise would if you folded everything basically okay let's see what would you say in poker and we just kind of touched on this maybe but what would you say is your superpower in poker consistency what do you mean by consistency um i i um as soon as i start to have thoughts and feelings come into my head that have in the past resulted in me coming off my a plus game i'm able to witness those rather quickly put them back where they came from and just focus entirely on on the game you know every single street of every hand i don't mean just the streets i'm playing i mean watching every street of every hand and you know, all along during my grinding years, I knew that tilt or, you know, uh, fatigue, jealousy, rage, all of those feelings were all costing me money in some way or another. And so now that none of those things happen while I'm playing, um, I'm my game is just really, really consistent. And it, it's high level focus. And, this, you know, this is where your meditation practice, your spirituality mm -hmm. practice just really serves you very, very well. Um, not ruminating, getting stuck in a, a mental feedback loop or, right. you know, just all the all the pitfalls that can happen that kind of takes you out of the present moment and into your own head. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, if you, I mean, if you want to call it a superpower, the fact that I stay out of my own head most of the time is it. <laughs> and that is a superpower, by the way. It, it, it certainly is because I see both sides of it, right? Like I, I've seen, mm -hmm. I, I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but you know, one of my, my superstar students sent me a video for our private coaching. And throughout the first 30 minutes, my thought was, well, okay, I, I guess he's just going to play, in my opinion, pretty perfectly for the whole hour. Like, what are we going to talk about? We're not gonna have anything to talk about. We're going to like right. show up and I'm be like, well, you did it. Congratulations. Um, but then something happened where he lost a stack and it was uh, a spot where he probably should not have lost a stack. And then all of a sudden on all of his tables, just play degraded across the board. He was having, you know, he called them brain farts. Um, everything was, you know, he was laboring at decisions that were five minutes ago, just very easy. And he had confidence and then everything just started to unravel. And we ended up having, you know, more than enough to talk about in our coaching session together. And, and that's yeah. just kind of what happens when you get yeah. stuck in a mental feedback loop and you can't just like, you know, get stacked, let it go and play the next hand. Right. And so, yeah, 100%, that is a superpower in this world because money that you save is not money that you lose. And at the mm -hmm. end of the year, if you save a bunch of money, well, then you can just add that to your yearly earn rate. Yeah, and it's, it's there's so many great players out there. Um, and, you know, it's just like such a waste. I used to feel this way. It's like, man, I just went and played eight hours of, and played bad. If only I'd played good, you know, it, uh, 
it, it's so easy when somebody's learning poker to get so wrapped up in the betting and everything, because you do have to get really, really good at that. And I think we might talk about this. You know, it takes years of total immersion. But I've always felt that as soon as somebody gets any kind of skill at all, that it, they really need to be working on their um, in lopping off their C game, you know, working on like just what you said. So if that client of yours, yeah, if he could just chop off all of those moments, those half hour segments where he was in that mindset, right? What would that do to his score? And so it's a it's, it's little bit of a delusion. There's a one point along the progress path that people get to where they, they, they really believe that the key to improving their results is just more study, more work, more study, more work. When really, if they were to take, you know, one third of that effort and somehow applied it toward just consistency or whatever you want to call it, that 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 their their return on investment in terms of the time working on their game would be higher or at least as high. And the other thing is for people who have real blowout problems, right, like binge tilting or whatever, and it could be at sports or craps or whatever, right? And I'm talking about somebody now who's trying to be a professional poker player. You, It's almost like those, those people have no chance because that self-destructive cycle is there. You know, I'm talking about severe cases. And in, until that's taken care of, they're never going to have, you know, that dream bankroll that never goes down. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's not a talent issue either. You know, I've seen right. and experienced human beings that have all the talent in the world but can't overcome the mental side of it, and they're just mm-hmm. toast. They're drawing dead. They, they stand no chance. Um, so obviously it can be the difference between success and failure just point yeah. blank. And it can also be the difference between success and great success too. Right. Yeah. So let's imagine that you've got a greatest hits collection for the best stories you've accumulated in your career, traveling around playing poker. Tell me a story that's on Tommy Angelo's greatest hits. My goodness. There's so many. I mean, most of the stories that I've collected and held on to are because there's some humor element. But this was this was one from uh, about 1994. I don't even know if this will even come off as funny, but I was playing in these really degenerate home games in Columbus, Ohio, playing for a living every night, five nights a week. These games started at seven. Smoky basements. Everybody smoked everything. There was a guy named Railroad John. And he was just this crusty old guy. I, he's got to be dead by now, so I don't think I'm hurting anybody's feelings by saying this. But he would get so mad that his whole head was about to explode. I mean, veins popping out and everything. So, and swearing and everything. So one time he goes, he is, he's like, fuck you guys. I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go end it all. So he goes in the bathroom and... He's pretending to kill himself, and he shoots off his gun <laughs> in the bathroom, right? Uh huh. Uh-huh. Of someone people were packing in these games, okay? Of Which someone's was actually home. Good. Pardon me. <laughs> he he go, went in the bathroom of someone's home and fired right, a gun off. Right. Uh, uh, somebody's apartment shot off his gun. Right. Wow. And, yeah, but these apartments were nothing to. So, and then nobody went in to check on him. <laughs> This is the funny part. So then he comes out and he's more mad than he'd ever been. He's like, you fucking assholes. I could be bleeding all over the place in there and nobody even come and look at me. And we're just, we're playing poker, man. We're not going to get up. Uh, so there's one. Um, 
I can tell you one. I wrote this one up. This is, a, I have quite a few stories I really like from when I first moved to California and I was playing in games that were 80%, like 70% Asian, about 15% other non white. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes I, there was none or maybe only one or two other white guys in the, in the game. I mean, for years, right? Mm-hmm. So right away, I made a lot of friends, a lot of Chinese friends, started going out to dinner with them. I learned how to <laughs> say the, all the names of the cards and the suits and a whole bunch of suits and uh, little phrases like, you know, momentai means no problem. Lang Loi means, you know, you say it with the accent. Lang Loi means, uh, you know, good looking woman. I, anytime I would hear these guys talking about a phrase and I heard it a number of times, I would ask one of my buddies, what's that mean? And I would write it down. I'm writing it down phonetically and then memorize it. So I'm playing with a couple guys that know me and the guy sits down. I don't know. And, and he, uh, Chinese guy or Asian of some kind, he sits down and he says, I beat him a hand. This is playing limit hold'em back in the days. I beat him a hand and he goes, you can't see me. He's like tapping the table, you know, maka hai, maka hai. And then I beat him another hand. He's like, maka hai, maka hai. So I asked one of my buddies, I was like, what's that mean? He goes, oh, it means nice hand. I'm like, well, that's cool. <laughs> I learned what nice, <laughs> you can see where this is going, right? I finally learned how to say nice hand in, in Mandarin. And uh, uh, so then somebody else sits down, another Chinese guy, and he beats me a pot. And I go, makahai. And he's like, <laughs> he's looking at me. <laughs> Turns out it means motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what one of my Chinese buddies, you know, set me up for. <laughs> so So the guy that was saying, Maka hi to you, just like straight faced, no like. Uh, yeah, he's just mumbling under his breath, exactly just, like somebody would do if they're saying he's just grumbling. He's okay. just grumbling. Oh, maka hai, maka hai. <laughs> kind of grumbling to himself, you know. Oh man, that's that's good stuff. Um, we need to get all of your stories out there. Like, we just need to extract all of your Tommy <laughs> Angelo old school poker stories um, and just get them out into the world. I think the world would be a much better place if we had all of those. Well, they're, well, they're all, they're at my blog. I mean, I've written up, you know, yeah, but there's gotta be some that you, you haven't written about. Do you have any that you wanted to write about? Probably are. Yeah. (laughs) If if any of them come to you in the course of this conversation, feel free because that's what I live for. Okay. Survived preflop boot camp. You've shot the fish in a barrel. Now, prepare yourself for the feeding frenzy. A comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool. Data driven hero bluffs, light call downs, and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings. Feeding Frenzy. Available now at chasingpokergreatness.com slash feeding frenzy. So I'm I'm toying with a new question here. I'll try it out on you. Uh, when you think of Nemesis in your poker career, who's the first either person or you know even force of nature that comes to mind? Oh, 
Man, I've had some definite and specific nemesis. Nemesi? Nemesi? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> uh, Google knows um, over the years. Um, but uh, actually, there's one. Uh, Man, I've had some real, some real doozies. And, you know, I got to say that every one of them, there's probably been a hand, three or four majors, you know, where I played against them multiple times over years. Uh, and these were the guys I learned the most from. And that was kind of, I was kind of lucky. It's like, if somebody was doing something that really annoyed me, I was like, man, I'm going to do that, whatever it is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but I can tell you one, the, the, story about a guy and I, this story I did write up in the fir, it's the first chapter of my book painless poker the whole chapter is a sort of a stand, uh, standalone story about my great moment of greatest pain and um, I mean I can just tell you the story the, the the guy's name was Jimmy in real life in the book I called him I think I called him Finney um, anyway it's it's quite a hand uh, so this guy was I was going down to St. Louis to play from Columbus, driving down to play on the weekends. And they had 20-40 limit hold'em every day. And then on Wednesdays and Fridays, they had a half-and-half half game, half pot limit hold'em, half pot limit Omaha. This is in 1995 they were playing pot limit Omaha. And this was along the riverboat. So these they had some of the same pros that were playing in Tunica and Biloxi were also playing in St. Louis. And also there was a game in Davenport, Iowa for a while. So I was hitting this circuit. And... There was one guy in that, in, that, in that game that was like just a standout great player. And he really, you know, had my number. And um, I'm tempted to go into the whole story of the hand. It's, it's quite a story. If anybody wants to read it, read the first chapter of Painless Poker. But what, what's happened, it's funny you should say that. So when I moved to the Bay Area and I'm playing, yeah, I just, I definitely had nemesis people. But... Over the years, and I've written about this a bunch of times, what I came up with is this idea of the hierarchy of fear at the table. Like, you could have player A fears player B, player B fears player C, and player C fears player A. It doesn't, it isn't automatically linear for everyone, right? And so what I learned and put into practice was what I wanted to do was sit at the top rung of the hierarchy of fear at the table. I wanted to have, in, in ideally, everyone fear me. But I, I was going to be happy, and this is the key, to be tied with other players at the top rung. I didn't need to try to surpass everyone, okay? So if there were a couple other 20, 40 grinders in the game that I knew were like solid players, right? I would intentionally not raise, elevate the war against them. We would play honest against each other. And I called that, an un, exactly these words, an unspoken non-interference pact is what we had. There was no verbal agreement, but we just knew we were going to stay out of each other's way because what happened is if I went and started bluffing one of these guys, they're just going to escalate the war and let's assume we're tied in skill. All we're going to do is throw more chips around. We're not going to make any money off each other. Let's assume that part, right? And so when it came to my nemesis players, over time, I got to the point where if somebody really had my number and I was like, okay, this is somebody I don't want to mess with, then my reaction was not to try to beat them. It was just to not play against them, okay? And just be tight, you know, 
and and that that worked wonderfully for me. You know, basically, I was just targeting the ding dongs. Is another <laughs> way of putting it. You know, and and not trying to beat every single player I ever came across. And so, as I got better at that, I didn't have the nemesis problem anymore. The players who would have been my nemesis, you know, because in the old days, I'd be like, I mean, I remember one time I used to go to the World Series back before 2005, you know, it was at the Horseshoe downtown. I've been going there since 87. And we would be down there in that basement, you know, cigarettes and everything, playing all night. And there were plenty of times I'd be in games where there'd be one guy who had my number and I'd be pissed, shorthanded, and just keep trying to beat him. He'd just clobber me, clobber me, clobber me, right? So I've had a lot of one-session nemesis characters, a lot of longer-range ones. Um, but that was all a very long time ago. I don't run into that problem anymore because I just stay out of the way of the players I think are really good. So that's a great answer. I think you, you may have validated the question in, in that I continue asking it moving forward. Okay. I, I really love that answer. Going back to you know you being at the WSOP since I believe you said 87, tell me, just tell me some old school observational stories, maybe DGen prop bets. There has to be something like in that that era because you know for me I was four years old and it's not something that I ever get <laughs> to experience and it wasn't like even documented, right? So yeah. do you have any oh. any stories about the old days WSOP in Binions? Yeah. Well, you know what when I have to draw up stories from memory, I the ones I remember are the ones I've written about. Okay, yeah. so here's here's one, and this has <laughs> definitely a degen element. The name of the article, there was a couple of years where I was writing columns for Poker Digest, and they gave me a press badge to just go down to the World Series and just like float around and write shit, right? So I wrote this article called Living on Olives at the World Series. And the olive story is now I gotta try to describe this scene because if if you just went into a convention room, a normal size convention room, I wish I knew the dimensions, but the entire World Series was in one room, and it wasn't all that big. I don't know. I should look back at the numbers. How many people were entering the main back then? It might have been like three or 400. Mm -hmm. so that's it, right? So 30, 40 tables. Yeah, and, and, and the whole thing might have only been three or four weeks long, I think. I, I really don't remember. I know it wasn't like it is now, obviously. So that was where the tournament was. And then the cash game area was downstairs. You go down the escalator and, and downstairs. You know, pretty good-sized room for a cash game room, but it was probably another, like, 30-table situation. Had these red rails, old maroon rails. All the tables had that real old green sort of, it's not felt, it's like a plasticky kind of thing that has like a ingrained, embossed uh, texture to it. And, you know, like I said, just smoking everywhere, just a real dirty, funky environment, right? And you go down there in the middle of the night, there'd be two or three shorthanded tables that are just total derelict. So I'm playing all night, all day, all night, whatever, you know, and I didn't play tournaments all at all. I've never entered a World Series event. You know, I've, I've just played cash until I dropped or the game broke period that was my only quitting policy and um we're playing and i'm starving i am like absolutely starving to death but i can't quit there's a poker game going on so the waitress comes and i'm like can you can i please get some kind of food anything and she's like no i can't you know even if i was allowed to there's nothing open i have to go here or there or whatever and i'm like 
do you have like olives? You know, for martinis. She goes, yeah. And I said, I would like a extra large martini with like 20 olives <laughs> and, and no liquid. She's like, okay. So she brought me a big old cup of olives. And that was my, that's what I ate to keep playing. That was and your I think sustenance. this is a pretty good example of true degeneracy. What's that? That was your sustenance, the olives. Right. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> it's hilarious that in a room you described as derelict and everyone is smoking in a tough atmosphere that she's not allowed to actually bring food to you. <laughs> like, it seems like such an obvious, like, yeah, you should probably yeah. be able to get some food brought to you while everybody's like smoking and, <laughs> you know, um, right. <laughs> but I guess different, different time. Oh, different. Yeah. I mean, they basically, they, they just set up these tables in the corner of a room. Yeah. It's just a whole different world back then. There was the, the attention toward serving the, the public, you know, making it a good thing for the customer was not as important as it is now. Yeah, And there for was sure. no competition. It was part of why. What I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall for that scene and just, you know, because like if all the cash games are in one place, then you know that like just a stone's throw away is, you know, Stewie and Doyle and Puggy and Slim oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, Jack Strauss, like all those, yeah. all those legends of the game are just battling like right there with everybody else in this right. all room, which is just like really awesome for me to, to exactly. visualize. You see all those guys every day mm -hmm. walking around. Cause it's all, we're all kind of in the cash game or upstairs or whatever, you know, everybody's around. Absolutely. It's a great time. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you got to experience it and I wish I could just get in a time machine and check it out but uh i guess i'll have to settle for you know your great story you have to start smoking uh, <laughs> well i mean I, I think i basically would right just being in that environment you're basically a smoker by default it seemed like it was required yeah um and i did too i mean i wrote one thing it was kind of funny about um when I, there was a period where i you know i've done some dealing not in public rooms but in home games right you know where i'm getting tip so <laughs> This is in Painless Poker somewhere, and I was, I'm describing this scene. So about how nasty. There's a whole a whole page about smoking and just how gross it is. So I'm describing the scene. I'm dealing, and and like the cigarette smoke would come right off the end of the cigarette, when, you know, which is concentrated right into my face. You know, one over here, one over here. And people blowing out, bellowing smoke, and it's like sometimes it would be like you could barely breathe, right? And then I would go on break, and I'd run outside and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> so no smoking at the table but going outside to smoke well i mean while you're dealing you can't smoke oh my whole dealing was that, that was right i i forgot the the detail that yeah, you're I mean, dealing, that's my dealing whole point with. here i am yeah. suffocating from other people's smoke but i couldn't wait to go outside and smoke a cigarette yeah right? you, you could couldn't wait to get your shot to go go out there yeah it's interesting that like there's this social dynamic to smoking that is kind of unique in that you know, if your friend smokes, it gives you an opportunity to kind of like take a break and go outside and have a conversation, oh, yeah. which I think there's a big benefit to that. And I, I've been thinking like kind of in my head about devising like, you know, just a, another social norm that basically takes you both outside to give you that break to breathe some fresh air and have that conversation, you know, without, you know, one of you 
killing yourselves in the process. That's really a great idea. And you're absolutely right. That is definitely one of the good things about smoking is the little pockets of break taking and socializing that it forms. Yeah, that's going to be the the title of this episode, The Benefits of Smoking, Tom and Angela. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you should just change it to The Benefits of Smoking Pot, and then we, then you could have a legit... <laughs> a legit, uh, right. not clickbaity. So you, you sent me an article before this conversation, and I guess since you mentioned pot, we'll segue <laughs> okay. to some studies on MDMA. Would you like to catch the listener up on, you know, this research? Well, I sent it to you because um, three months ago when we talked, we talked about shrooms and we kind of got into that. And so this is, a, you know, this is a, a story even that people are following, even if they're not even interested in doing it. But anyone who's interested in how science is moving forward to improve the human condition, and by that I mean reduce the amount of unhappiness for individuals, um, it's quite a story that in the 50s, there was a lot of research done on LSD and how it could actually uh, help with mental issues that people have. But that none of that research was real science. You know, it wasn't hardcore science. It, I mean, it, it was, but the control groups weren't like what they do now. You can read all about this in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which is like the book on this. But what what um, in 2006 there was a that's when we learned how to do a lot of the brain scanning, scanning and brain imagery and looking at where blood activity is in the brain and being able to draw you know firm conclusions about what that means about what that brain is doing or how it's changed or whatever. So as a result of all that, that technology they've you know looked at Buddhist monks like lifer Buddhist monks under the MRIs, and, and, and also people taking LSD and ecstasy, okay, MDMA. <clears throat> and uh, that there's been a ton learned of that, about the similarities and about the benefits. And so now, since then, there, there was one <clears throat> really scientific study done specifically on people who are suffering from a specific kind of pain, which is end-of-life fear. Like terminal, once you actually have a terminal illness, a new whole kind of depression can come in that's specific to that life. Well, there's been controlled studies done on these people. And so the, the new thing is guided tripping, right? So you, you take a big dose. There's a lot of pre-work, a lot of pre-prep you know, education and all this. And then you take this big dose, like on a couch with one or two guides, sometimes having uh, eye mask covering on, sometimes having music, whatever. But it's a guided trip specifically for the purpose of undoing major, major mental issues. Okay. So now they've been doing, now the study I just sent you is brand new. It, it, the study is going to be released soon. But they've been doing it on um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress people. And the results are not surprising based on all the stuff we've learned so far. That in this controlled setting with the, with the MDMA, that, um, and they did it with placebo and actual. This is a real study. That the, the, the data is conclusive that this is definitely a good thing. 
So it's, I, I just look at it as it's very exciting. It kind of, you know, for me as somebody who's done these types of things, you know, since I was a kid and periods without, periods with, it's just no surprise to me at all. But what my excitement is that so many people are now going to be able to benefit from this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, experiential is the best way, right? Like we didn't even really have evidence of that meditation worked or like, you know, direct evidence until very recently. And yet people have been doing it for thousands of years. And when you do it, the benefits are pretty obvious to you, to you once you experience them. So it's no surprise. You know, I think what happened in the seventies as it relates to LSD is like the war on drugs basically undid all or halted that research in its yep. tracks, which is kind of a, a travesty, just really, I mean, it's, it's just yeah, a it tra- yeah. tra- travesty. And the reality is like, I hope that the stigma kind of drops so that people can, you know, at least consider that as an option, if they suffer from some sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, because PTSD is debilitating. It is awful. It will ruin someone's life experience. And if there are paths to make that lesser or make it go away, that is Mm -hmm. just invaluable to all of humanity. And for the folks that, you know, just kind of shout from the rooftops that like all drugs are bad, don't do drugs, et cetera, et cetera. If you know somebody that you love that has suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. would you risk it? Right? Like what is the downside to, you know, mushrooms or MDMA in that, you know, maybe you have a a bad trip and you have some psychological effects that last a week or two, but that's the downside is so minimal compared to the upside, like the chance that you get to start over in your life experience and undo all that past trauma and suffering and pain. I mean, you know, you should be willing to risk, risk almost anything to get out of that. and the big difference now is the reason people are really taking a look at it is there is, there is real science now. It isn't the same with meditation. It isn't just somebody's opinion or, you know, right. And, and so the, what you said about a bad trip. Okay. Now, according to Michael Pollan, who is like researched this to the nth degree and talked to everybody in the field, there has never been a quote unquote bad trip under the protection and guidance of the clinical trip, right? Where you where you you work with a therapist before and after, right? So it's, yeah, it's control. Even that is out of the picture. That that fear and and granted, it takes science and it takes time. If I were somebody who was skeptical and worried about it, I had PTSD and I looked and I see okay, so a thousand people have done this and none of them have had the bad trip. Well, I'm going to feel a lot better about it because that's real data. Right? Yeah, and so that's what's really making it accessible to people is it's not foo foo anymore. And set and set, set and setting matter a great deal as oh, it re- relates absolutely. to this this kind of. That's why people use guides. That's why they use a controlled environment. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that that's probably a reason why people have bad trips is just a poor set and setting, and the people that you surround yourself with are basically uh, ding dongs, as you you would say um (laughs) you remove those variables and you know apparently the data suggests that things go much better well it's the difference between recreational and and not recreational you know this is medicinal or medicinal right 
This is absolutely taken for a specific person purpose to help with a specific problem, Healing. which is exactly the opposite of let's just feel good and run around. Yeah, let's just let's just be ding dongs ourselves and <laughs> have a have a fun time. But yeah, it, this is about healing, and I'm with you in that. This is great news. I mean, it to is. to basically kind of sit back as a human being and be like, all of this is just bad. It's you know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. But like, without knowledge or without knowing whether that's the case or not, just stigmatizing something to basically just to stigmatize it because somebody told you that you should, I think right. that we, we should probably look to elevate ourselves beyond that and think about these things on our own and, and then just make a judgment call based on our knowledge and more data driven and the reality of the situation than more, uh, you know, propaganda driven. Yep. Agreed. So have you made any purchases in the last, we'll say year? that have been impactful to your poker game? Oh, impactful. Well, I haven't played poker in a year and a half. What about your coaching or just your life in general? A small purchase that's upgraded your life. Oh, yeah. I bought a base amp, a 300-watt base amp, because the people on my street started having a street gathering when COVID started, you know, very much distanced. And then musicians started accumulating, and then we we were getting into more jamming. And with this batch of musicians, the best way I could contribute was on bass. They really needed that, and they needed some rhythm. And um, so I have just a little toy bass amp, and I was like, well, if I'm going to be playing outside, I need a real amp. So I got a 300-watt amp, and his name is Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's definitely improved, improved my quality of life. Oh, well, I mean, you just want to non-poker purchases of interest. Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything that could help the listener out, help the listener solve any sort of problem in their life. Oh, okay. Let's see. Helpful purchases. Um, well, we did get a, a power wall, which is like an electronic. It stores 13 kilowatts of energy, which is great because we have rolling power outages here now every year during fire season. Uh, that's not universally helpful, though. Not much in the way of what kind of what sort of poker purchases did you have in mind? <laughs> I don't know. So this this is another question that I've been asking lately. And so. I guess the best answer. So there's there's been one answer that has made asking this question worth it. And okay. that that came from Lucky Chewy. And Lucky Chewy's answer was that he bought a Tesla. And you wouldn't think that this is like related to your poker game, right? But he said that one, he doesn't buy a lot of things for himself. And he was test driving cars and he liked the Tesla the most. So that was one reason why he bought the Tesla. And another, another thing that he does with his Tesla is he uses it as a reminder that if you work hard, good things happen. And so it's a reminder to keep working hard, uh, keep learning, keep growing, keep trying to improve as a poker player and just bear down and get through it, um, which I think is just you know a really awesome way to remind yourself that, yeah, you know, hard work does pay off and there is fruit 
at the at the end of it if you so choose to to purchase something like that and yeah so that to me is just a it's not even a poker thing but it it helps him out yeah just shows him that he needs to work hard well there's a nice message there not not only that the hard work can pay off but that but being grateful for what he has right absolutely what i can add to that is i mean i have all kinds of you know lovely possessions now but i don't feel I need any of them to be happy, you know? So, and because of that, it, I keep being grateful for all of them because I know they're not going to last. Everything with a beginning has an end, right? And so every day that I have uh, our Tesla, which we got like three years ago, it's, it, I has the same effect on me. It's like, wow, I'm just so grateful to, to have, manage to not um fall by the wayside or whatever and you know the car represents gratitude toward everything to me but i'll just throw this in we also this last year right before covid we got a tesla roof do you know about that i don't so instead of getting a we needed a roof anyway instead of getting a roof and then adding solar panels so you've seen that right Uh, yeah tesla and I encourage anyone to look this up because there are going to be other companies doing it. I mean, anybody that's going to need a roof in the next 10 years, that they're called solar tiles. So the same material that actually keeps the water out of the house is the solar panel. There's no solar panel. It's, it's glass shingles. And, and they, uh, they are solar panels. So our, our house looks like a normal house except it's the roof is black. I mean, like glass black. That is awesome. And it, and it, it collects the sun's power every day and, you know, stores it in our thing. So anyway, I, I think the important message that should, is good to connect anytime you're talking about gratitude is planning for loss and, and working so that, Losing things, I'm talking about possessions now, but it also does extend to cats and people, ultimately. Not um, dogs. Well, no, not dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said cats because we have two cats. <laughs> Fuck um, dogs. Yeah. No. So is, is the idea that um, if, you're, if you just recognize that Every one, every one of your relationships with your possessions and your people will come to an end, right? And so when it does happen, instead of thinking, oh, man, I wish I still had that, um, you know, let's say you drop your guitar and break it or whatever, and it was like your favorite guitar. Yeah, you can replace the guitar, but that guitar had sentimental value or whatever, Right. So instead of every time that guitar comes to mind through your whole life, instead of thinking, oh, that's the guitar I lost, which is a negative thought, you can replace that with the thought, wow, I love that guitar. I'm so glad I had those years with that guitar. And this is one of those recurring things I train myself to like default to when when I lose something, a possession that I cared about that is no more. Wow, that was great that I had that time with that thing. And then you can go the next step and say the same thing with people. 
So instead of thinking, oh, man, I wish Uncle Carl hadn't have died so young, I think to myself, wow, we had all those great years together. And this is, we're moving into the death territory again. <laughs> Here we go, yeah. Um, but <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about this myself and that our experience on Earth is transient. We will die. Like you said, everything with a beginning has an ending. And I was just kind of thinking about like, where does the loss come from, right? Like when, when somebody passes away that's close to us, why do we feel this pain and why do we suffer? And, you know, the only thing that I could kind of land on was that we're sad that we don't get to make more memories with said person. We don't get to make more memories with said guitar um, or said cat or even said dog, and that doesn't take away from the memories that have already been made, right? Like you don't lose those experiences that you have. You know, I, I know that here's a good example. You know, my dad, um, my dad has been going through some stuff over the past year and it's been rough for me. And the thought that I had was that, you know, at the end of the day, my father will pass away. This is just going to happen. It's inevitable. And those times, like when I was a kid, you know, I, I remember being seven years old and watching wrestling with my dad. Uh, we were just watching wrestling, hanging out, fooling around. And then I got tired and, you know, we took a nap. And, and I remember like laying with him on the bed and just feeling safe you know, just kind of snuggled up next to my dad and we took a nap together. And I'll never forget that feeling of just peace and safety. And no matter what happens moving forward, um, I always have that, right? I always yeah. have that memory. I always have that feeling. I always have those thoughts. That doesn't get taken away when a person does pass away. And I guess it, it just gives me solace in that, you know, we still have these positive memories with human beings, even, you know, friends that you don't talk to anymore that you'll probably never talk to again, who are effectively dead in that you don't get to have any, make any more memories with them. We still have the good times and, and mm -hmm. that those are meaningful and, and just ought to be appreciated. Yeah. And, you know, you said something like what about the, loss like why do we feel that loss when it comes to people dying and getting sick one of the reasons is that it reminds us that we're going to die yeah we don't we don't usually think that and and i i mean this is what you know experts say about where this pain comes from is that part of it is we live our lives um not it's not really delusion but we just don't deal with death we don't think about our immortality generally, because it's not a fun thing to think about, because we are attached, you know, our ego doesn't want to want to die, right? It doesn't want to die by way of meditation. It doesn't want to die by way of death. It wants to keep going. So but the the idea that when somebody else dies, there's it just forces us to consciously or unconsciously face our own mortality. This is not a new new thought, but that does go a long way explaining where why is this so painful? You know, just so, so painful. Even like you said, even if it's somebody that, you know, it's, the ones that are interesting is like if somebody has a slow deteriorating death and everybody knows it's coming, 
when they finally die, there's some form of relief with some people to some degree. But then it's like all of it with some people, their grief really doesn't really kick in until that moment, even though it was completely predictable, you know, and they and you knew it was coming. And um, there's just all all different ways this goes with different people. But it, there there are ways there really are ways out of this. I mean, it, there's always going to be some amount of pain, but it can be drastically, drastically re reduced. I'm talking about the pain of losing a loved one to death. It can be drastically reduced by all of these things we've talked, some of the things we've talked about now and before about making death something that is part of your awareness, like on a day-to-day -day basis. And the, and the reason to do that isn't to be depressed. It's to be more grateful and more loving and more appreciative of each day, of each person, of each contact. Absolutely. And we mentioned, uh, well, in, in our last conversation, you know, we talked about end of life. And I, I just want to say this too, is it's, it's interesting to me that like, you know, the term when your cat is suffering, right, is to euthanize the cat, to put it out of its misery. Uh, it's humane. It's the humane thing to do, which has always struck me as weird, weird wording for that in that when humans suffer for almost ever until quite recently, we haven't been able to get assistance for basically getting euthanized or getting right. um, taken out of our, our misery, ending our own suffering, which is just funny that we apply this label of it's the humane thing to do to our animals, but yet we don't allow other humans to, to experience yeah. the, the quote unquote humane thing. And it isn't just the, the, the person who's dying. That's what we usually think of is like, Oh, this person's in pain. We're going to put them out of their suffering. The people that are really being put out of their suffering is the, 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 the inner circle as well. Because if you love someone, and like Robert Hyland in Stranger in a Strange Land, he defined love, this is loosely paraphrased, but essentially it means when your happiness is dependent on the happiness of someone else. You know, I, I love that, right? That's really helped clarify my relationship with my wife sometimes. It's like, Oh, why don't I feel good right now? Well, she doesn't feel good. I can't feel great if she doesn't feel great. I can, but you know what I mean? It's like, so, so when the inner, so if you love someone and they're dying of cancer and they're in great pain, if you're able to euthanize them, it not only gets them out of the pain, but you too, because every single moment you're suffering because they're suffering. And that it's huge relief for the family when this can be done. And this is, yeah. So if you have not listened to our round two conversation, I very much, I very much think that you would enjoy it right now. If you're listening to this round three, just because this sort of expands on what we touched on last time. And it's a very compassionate, it's just a very compassionate, thought and plan that you have. And uh, I, I can say that like today's conversation has given me more clarity on sort of the whys and understanding of, you know, all the variables in play here that we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, I, I think that 
this is a pretty yeah this is this is a pretty powerful note to close on and so in closing today I'll ask you do you have any projects you're working on right now that are near and dear to your heart that you'd like to let the listener know about Yes I'm making videos at my YouTube channel and uh, they're called Poker Words Best way to get there is go to tommyangelo.com scroll down a little bit you'll see them and I am really excited about this. Um, the, the, I'm making another three video set right now called uh, Going Pro. And the first one's called, But It's Not Gambling. And it's about trying to explain to people what the heck you're doing. And, um, and then the second one's called To Jump or Not to Jump. And then the third one is called Living the Life. And so I'm kind of writing all of these at the same time. It's gonna be a three video set. So I'm I'm really really excited about you know making videos. That's that's really my project. That's it. Tommy, you're an asset, and yeah, the the whole entire poker community is just better for having you involved in it. It's always uh, an honor and a pleasure, even if we don't agree about small blind, big blind <laughs> strategy. We can we can put that behind us. And uh, no, nah, I just I I love you. And um, the final question Thank here you. is uh, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience learn more about you on the World Wide Web? Oh, well, at my site, TommyAngelo.com. I'm glad you asked. And Twitter. That's my only social media, but I'm very active there. I post one little pithy saying every day and then, you know, other various links like to my new videos and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, check me out on on. Twitter, my handle there is at um, the Tommy Angelo is my name there, the Tommy Angelo. And yeah, that's that's basically it, my website and Twitter. And if you click on the show page link, you can click through to Tommy's social media, his website, and his YouTube channel. And once again, thank you very much. It's always an honor having you on, and we'll do this again in the near future, man. Okay, thanks for having me. I'll see you, Brad. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.